Devorah Enton, and I'm joining you on behalf of Yesh Tikva. Liz Vaisman is joining me just like kind of a stone's throw across the river here in Philadelphia. And I invited Liz to talk with me today because Liz specializes in um, an area of law that really is very specific to infertility. And um, Liz, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and, and the kind of work that you do? Sure. sure. And Devorah, thank you so much for having me. And I'm so excited to be a part of Yesh Tikva and continue to grow with this community. Um, so as you said, my name is Liz Baseman. I'm an attorney in the Philadelphia area. I specialize in family building law. So that can look like adoption, foster care, or assisted reproduction, which I know we'll be talking about today, which can include everything from egg, sperm, and embryo donation to surrogacy, um, and even thinking about protecting your rights and your family through estate planning related to um, that family building as well. Amazing. You know, I know that there's many layers to the work that you do. Could we start with surrogacy as an area of you know, primary interest right now. Um, I have worked with a number of couples that are dealing with recognizing that perhaps their own reproductive story is going to include use of a surrogate or a gestational carrier. Talk to me a little bit about some of the legal things that people have to cope with, manage, deal with, think about. Um, and even if somebody's watching this is not personally experiencing it, but just to become more aware to the complexities of the legal issues that people are facing. Absolutely. Well, I think one of the first things I always think about is like advocating and counseling with compassion, because as you know, families and individuals have been through a lot. Oftentimes, if they're coming to a lawyer for help in um, reproduct reproductive law or help in learning about adoption. So I always think about that first, that we're all people first. And of course, asking them to tell me their story and how I can help them. I find just reframing and hearing everyone's story. So even your mention of putting yourself in someone else's shoes, I think is so important. And so when it comes to surrogacy, the very first thing to think about is it is state by state specific and country by country specific. Um, the United States actually has a lot more leniency than a lot of other countries. So individuals come to the U.S. from other countries to do surrogacy journeys. Um, and in the U.S., it's state by state. So, you know, I'm here in Philly, Camden is over the river in the other direction, and the law is significantly different. And so um, medicine and technology is changing rapidly and the law is slow to evolve. So things that you wanna think about, exactly what you brought up, the psychological screening and counseling, making sure that all parties, be it the carrier who will be carrying um, the embryo and their spouse, needs to go through this counseling as well as the intended parents, um, talking through the various aspects of what could happen, whether it be a good match in the surrogacy. An example could be um, whether someone's willing to terminate a pregnancy if there's multiples or certain genetic or medical health concerns. Um, also things like health insurance. Um, some states have certain exclusions in the health insurance policies for surrogates, others do not. And there is specific health insurance that could be purchased. Life insurance, um, a lot of agencies, you know, oftentimes people will work with an agency to match with a surrogate and they will kind of manage the process through their journey. Um, they may require the surrogate to have life insurance, may have require the surrogate to have their own estate planning documents and things like that. So if it's not legal per se, it'll be required in the contract that you'll put together. Um, most states have some sort of requirement for a gestational carrier agreement being a contract between the intended parents and the gestational carrier and their spouse if they are uh, married to somebody else. And that agreement will outline everything from the psychological counseling to the compensation, if they're being compensated for that, the services related to the surrogacy journey, health insurance, life insurance, 
um, medical expenses beyond um, just the actual what health insurance could cover, travel expenses, lodging, lost wages, all those aspects come into play. With the surrogacy journey, I always say it includes financial, legal, and really social issues that come up throughout the process. And I think having a community of support is really important and also understanding the risks as you go through each of these pieces. So tell me, so just in terms of terminology, is there a difference between a gestational carrier and a surrogate? Yeah, I realized I was kind of using them hand in hand. So <laughs> it's a hard, but it depends, you know, the lawyer answer that I'll, I'll give to you. And so traditionally surrogacy is somebody, a woman that's carrying a child that is genetically related to her, it would be her egg and the sperm would be either a donor sperm or, you know, their, um, one of the intended, the intended father's sperm, either through IUI or through IVF. Um, and more and more, that could be called either genetic surrogacy or traditional surrogacy. There has been a great shift to gestational carrier or gestational surrogacy where um, a woman is actually carrying the embryo that's not biologically related to her. It could be the genetic material of both intended parents, or it could be, you know, part egg donor, part sperm donor, all, don all donated together, or it could be an embryo that was donated to them. Um, and then that embryo is transferred to the uterus of the gestational carrier. In commonplace, the language is really used interchangeably, and I think surrogacy has come to kind of mean generally someone else carrying the child for you, but more and more we're seeing that it is gestational carriers, not genetic. And that is a big legal difference, huge legal difference because a genetic carrier is related. They're the biological parents, that child, whereas gestational carrier is not, that um, the embryo is biologically related to other parties or that of the intended parents. And in every state that can have a big impact on parentage and establishing you know, rights then to the child. Um, in the gestational carrier agreements, we really outline who, what the intentions are and what the rights are. However, state law is, state law is changing all the time. And um, there's a big party that's not part of that agreement and that's the actual child. And that child could have potentially rights of inheritance or parentage and what that could look like in the future if that state's laws are quiet on those issues. And so um, there's certain states that have really well-written law when it comes to reproductive law about who can be a surrogate, what has to be in an agreement, um, and they really outline the method to parentage. Other states are more contract and case law based and may require you to do pre-birth orders to establish parentage or post-birth orders, making sure you're on the birth certificate and even adoption in many cases as well. And so it's just so, so important to um, work with a professional an ethical and specialized professional in your state. Um, and there are a few organizations, SEEDS, they have a directory of agencies and attorneys that they recommend in surrogacy and egg donation space. And then there's also the Academy of Adoption and Assisted Reproductive Attorneys that has a vetted directory of attorneys that work in this space. Fascinating. I'm sure we can link some of that into our postings as well. Absolutely. So are there, I'm just curious, are there any states that would allow, that offer any kind of rights to the gestational carrier if the, the child is not at all genetically related to her? Is there any state that, that does she have rights to that parentage if she's not genetically related to the baby? She could, yeah, by giving birth right. to the child. It could just depend on the state. And then there's also differences where New York, for example, it's actually going into effect this month, which is amazing. It used to be actually illegal to have 
uh, a gestational care that's compensated, which is someone that's being paid for those services. You could have mm -hmm. someone do it altruistically or compassionately, but it was still very complicated. And so thinking about, you know, a carrier in Pennsylvania could cross the border to go to Times Square or something, go into labor, and then is the, is the parent you know, of, yeah. of that. And that's just like one example. And so in the contracts, there's a lot of language about the carrier agreeing not to leave the state a certain time and tending to give birth in the state um, mm -hmm. and things like that. And so you just want to really have a very clear agreement so that the intentions are laid out early. And of course, work with the court. Like, for example, now there's a lot of issues with um, families getting to where they need to go. Let's say a family overseas, they're in a country that surrogacy is illegal and their borders closed due to COVID. How can we get them to the US? How can we make sure they have parentage? And how can we make sure that child that has citizenship in the other country? And so there's so many issues even just beyond um, can we even have a surrogate? But I think again, that's why it's so important to work with the right agencies and attorneys to make sure you're choosing a carrier in a state and using the state's laws that you can most protect your rights. It's fascinating. I mean, there's so many layers to this. I remember reading about this um, in the height of COVID where there were babies that were stranded here in the United States and families that were stranded here and then babies that were stranded in, I think it was the Ukraine. And where it's a whole group of babies that were born to surrogates or to gestational carriers and the parents couldn't get there to pick them up. And it was really yeah. quite a crisis. And then there's actually on the other end when families choose um, not to take the children with them. And because there isn't, you know, there isn't a federal law on surrogacy, um, and internationally, there are huge, huge different levels of beliefs between the UN to country by country. And there are people that have chosen not to take the children that are biologically related to them and leave them in other countries due to health concerns or that couple broke up um, or whatever it can look like. And so there are a lot of, um, conversations about kind of women's rights and human's rights around when people take advantage of this system. But for the most part, it's an incredible opportunity for family building for so many families um, that may, and then also for carriers, gestational carriers to really do a beautiful thing for other people. And the carriers mm -hmm. I work with, they really are passionate about this, um, right. what they're doing for families. Talk to me a little bit about some of the vulnerability issues, meaning I think about how some of the people that I work with are in many ways are, are such a, it's a vulnerable population that desperately want to build a family, desperately want to have a child. And, you know, I, I get very nervous when I hear people saying, so I was looking on a Facebook group and I was looking on Craigslist and people were promoting, you know, and it's not part of an agency because the agency is so expensive. And talk to me a little bit about some of the risks that people can really run into if they don't go the route of like a well-established agency or kind of a broker, I guess you might say, what are some of the risks or things like, have you noticed or have you learned along the way? Well, really just what we mentioned before is establishing that parentage. You know, um, if somebody decided to go, let's say they use a sperm donor through with a turkey baster and kind of go that route and decide to then have that child and years later, perhaps they're having issues getting any vital documents for their family, or they might have to do an adoption at that time and they can't get a hold of the sperm donor. Or let's say that sperm donor wants to show that they're a parent and had been sending gifts yearly and did see the child here and there. And so we also see this um, where couples break up then and maybe do not have whether, maybe they didn't establish parentage by the other parent accurately. And then even if they've been raising the child, they may end up not having rights to them and things like that. And so I think it's just so important to have everything planned out in the beginning. Also just financially, um, 
you know, surrogacy can be very expensive from like 120 to up to $200,000 really all in. And you don't want to kind of jump in and start being so financially vulnerable after you're already so vulnerable um, without really knowing if you're in it. And, and that's why I always refer people to counseling first. I say, you know, I'll have people call me from Facebook. They found someone on Facebook. They're ready to move forward. Um, they want an attorney. They want to draft an agreement. And the first thing I ask is, have you spoken with a therapist? You know, have you done counseling? And then I'll, I'll send over a list of counselors um, because if you're not on the same page, all those other steps won't fall in line. And an agency really works hard to make, do that matching behind the scenes. Um, so vulnerabilities, I think emotional, definitely financial, legal constraints, you know, worrying about future legal issues. Um, if you create embryos as a married couple, maybe having a postnuptial agreement discussing who um, those embryos are entitled to, should there be a separation or divorce, and then in your estate planning documents, accounting for those embryos as well and making sure um, that the other party will be able to have access to them should they want them. Um, and lots of times you'll be signing documents with the clinic. And I think families don't realize maybe what they signed when they got the egg donor to make the embryo five years ago isn't what their intentions are today, but they haven't created new legal documents. And so- Wait, can, so can you give me an example of when that would happen? What would be an sure. example of that? Yeah, I actually just worked with a family on this. So it was a family that created um, embryos with the husband's, sperm and they use an egg donor and so they but it was a uh, um through the egg donor through the fertility clinic so they just got an egg donor from the, the donor bank at the clinic created the embryos and on that document they had signed off the only thing they had signed off was when i reach age 55 i agree that these can be destroyed but they didn't check off who they could go to any sort of benefactor um it didn't say anything about if the other party if there was death or disability it didn't say anything about divorce um, and then if they became pregnant and then uh, built their family with two children and didn't want to have any more kids. And so they actually ended up choosing to donate their embryos to a family that needed embryos. And so they came to me for the embryo donation agreement. But what was interesting is they had signed the agreement with the clinic, you know, four or five years ago. And in there, it didn't explicitly say, this is the person I'm giving it to. And so we worked with the clinic to include language in the contract saying, this is the new agreement between all of us. Um, that agreement said, these are our options. We're choosing to use this option to donate to these people and kind of like really outlining each aspect of the donation process. And then they signed a release with the clinic and the new family signed a consent to accept the embryos. And so just understanding that each time you sign something, it doesn't mean that you can't work through it later, but that it could have certain effects that you're not necessarily planning for them to have. And in theory, could that egg donor deny access for those embryos to be moved over to another family? Depending on what their agreement was. So most likely if the eggs are with a clinic in that way, they probably signed off open use by that family. But then now that they're donating to another family, they did actually allow for this family to donate if they chose to, but they want to know the other family's information and they want to have informed consent. Hmm. Um, but I have done other agreements where the intent, the um, donors have said, no, this is the last stop. This cannot be donated to any third parties under any, um, any sort of circumstances. And so it's really specific. I, and I think a big takeaway is there's no formula. There's no catalog. These are individuals and we can look at all these considerations, but really have to make the roadmap, you know, that's right for each family. So it's really, you know, I think it, you're really speaking to the idea of needing somebody who can really make sure 
that every, it's not just the checkboxing, it's really kind of discussing, it's a really a discussion of what is the future, what are all the future possibilities? Um, and how do we navigate them with whatever information we have today, but how can we best plan for an outcome that we would both be comfortable with? I'm wondering if you could talk a little more about, you know, posthumous usage of either eggs or embryos or sperm. Like if we're talking about, um, you know, somebody who, who either, either a, a partner dies, can the woman use that embryo? Or if, uh, if we, you know, we've been, there was a lot of conversation around if someone goes off to war and banks sperm before he goes off to war, dies at war, is family allowed to use that sperm um, with a gestational carrier? Not, not his partner, but somebody else. What have been some of your, what is the conversation, whether relevant particularly or not, what has been some of the conversation or things that you have learned along the way along these, about these issues? Yeah, so the first thing is it's a very interesting issue and it's so case specific. And we have seen these cases pop up and it's so dependent to the jurisdiction and the facts of the case. So some things that could come up is if that sperm was banked, what type of documents were signed at that time? Does it say on there, you know, if I'm deceased, this will go to my parents. If I'm deceased, this will go to my spouse. If I'm deceased, these will be destroyed. And if the, that is that person's intention, I think it's gonna be really hard for a family to have a court override that. Mm -hmm. um, also, you would look at their estate uh, planning documents. So what does their will say regarding it? If it's, you wanna look for where you can find intention. And so ideally, they would match whatever you sign with the clinic would be similar to what you have in your will. Um, but sometimes there's neither. And then the court might look to, especially if somebody is um, maybe haven't passed away yet, but is in between medically not stable, but still alive, um, they may want to take some of the genetic material and whether or not a hospital will do that usually depends on whether a court will allow it. And so they'll look to see if that person is an organ donor, if they had signed over their intentions previously. Mm -hmm. um, there is a case that was about two sisters and the one sister had offered to be an egg donor for the other and then had been in a horrible accident. And the dad and sister were trying to um, get the, the eggs from, um, and I think that the one that was gonna be the intended parent had a medical condition and couldn't carry. And I think they did, I'll have to look up the case and I can send it to you when we talk afterwards. They were successful because there had already been intentions laid out for that plan. And I believe in that state, um, it was allowed and she maybe was an organ donor. Again, I'll have to look at the specific facts, but wow. all those things will come to play. And so I think it is really difficult though for families and spouses when they want to move forward with using a deceased spouse's genetic material and when they can't. Um, mm -hmm. So again, having those difficult conversations, when you're creating this genetic material, it does create this, these responsibilities that are ongoing beyond just the yearly storage fee. Um, and really going through and having those discussions early so that you're set up for any future issues. And really you're protecting your family members um, and showing your intentions early on. So what might be some considerations? I know uh, there's a number of women are, are, thankfully women are beginning to discuss the idea of banking their eggs, right? For, to preserve future fertility. What would be some of the things that we would want women to consider uh, beyond just, you know, this is how it's gonna happen, Talk to me a little bit about what are some of the things they should be thinking about beyond just preservation. For, for egg freezing? And do you mean just like the process? I'm sorry, egg freezing, not egg donation. Egg freezing, freezing. for yeah, fertility egg preservation. preservation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fertility preservation. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. So um, there is a lot coming out of this and it has gone, gotten so busy in 2020 and 2021 of, of women thinking about this. And so with egg freezing is what's nice is your eggs are frozen at the age you are when they're retrieved and actually they're nine months older than us because you know they're created right when we're created. Um, and so they recommend going through the egg freezing process before you turn 35. Every body is different, but it is great to go to a fertility doctor or your own doctor and talk about your options. Um, it can be expensive, egg freezing can, your work may have some coverage or they may cover the drugs or the storage, but it can range from six to $20,000 really depending on your own needs. I would say with the average being like seven to 10,000 of what it costs, including the yearly, yearly storage and drugs. Um, and when you're doing that, there are several considerations beyond just freezing. One is thinking about your intentions for those. So you will want to write with the clinic who you want your benefactor to be for those eggs. For example, I am my sister's benefactor for her frozen eggs. Um, and then also thinking about what you want to happen to them. Because right now, let's say you're single and freezing your eggs. When you get married, does that become part of then your marital property per se and what that looks like for your relationship. Um, eggs you cannot genetically test. And so if you know who, let's say you're in a relationship and planning to be married, it would make more sense to create embryos. Or let's say you know you want to have a sperm donor in the future. You may actually choose to freeze embryos instead of eggs. Um, because you can genetically test them. And so eggs are much more fragile. It's one cell versus a ton of cells that are in an embryo. And so um, I think that's something that a lot of couples consider even going through the IVF process is let's, free, let's retrieve the eggs, maybe freeze them, but first implant them, create an embryo, or sorry, fertilize it, create an embryo, and then genetically test that. Um, just the cost, the ongoing cost of egg freezing, there will be yearly storage fees, probably around five to 800. Um, and it is a lot on your body if you're going through the process of planning to freeze your eggs. There are many shots. It can be from two to six weeks, kind of the prep up until you're ready for the retrieval and then some recovery time as well. But a lot of the clinics, and especially around here, we have such great medical facilities. Um, they make it as easy as they can for, for women and it is becoming so much more normal that you can always talk to somebody about their experience. And the clinics are also looking for cost-effective ways, you know, um, having low or no interest payment plans and things like that. And so from a legal perspective, what I hear you saying is that you want to consider, does, do those eggs become part of the the marriage property versus these are mine and you can't touch them. Um, and yeah. Right, yeah. In terms of the and, and you have to think about that. And then also thinking about when you froze them versus when you're going to use them, what that looks like. So let's say you freeze sure. them on your own, you get married. It's not in your prenup or postnup or anything. And then you make embryos. Are those eggs only yours? And then the embryos, you and your husband's. And I think the best way to answer that is just to write it out <laughs> and yeah. have, yeah, you know, have a postnuptial agreement, talk about where it goes in your will, should something happen to you and then have whatever you sign with the clinic match whatever is in those documents. Cause also let's say you're not planning to ever use those ads or you've used some to make embryos um, and you're not sure whether you want to destroy them or donate them to science or donate them to another family. You want to kind of make that choice earlier because otherwise you're going to be paying this yearly storage fee without knowing. Um, and, and then you're basically by not making a decision, you're actually forcing someone else to probably make the decision for you. And so I always kind of say by not making a decision, you're, by having a few options, you're making no decision at all, really. Right. Um, so it's important to, to really have your intentions outlined in advance for any aspect of storing genetic material and family building. 
what I'm thinking just as we like kind of wrap it up a little bit, you know, kind of as we're moving towards the end of our conversation, one of the things that's kind of highlighted for me is how often, especially if I am a single woman um, making these decisions, I might not necessarily be consulting with immediate family members. I might be doing this in consultation with a lawyer, in consultation with a doctor, but I might not be including immediate family members in my decision and my discussion of doing this. And I'm thinking how necessary it is that there really be somebody within your family that knows what you've done, what your intentions are, what your wishes are, so that in the event that for whatever reason you're incapacitated, somebody has is aware of and kind of is kind of in that chain of command in knowing what you have created and what kind of genetic material and property is out there kind of floating around <laughs> so that the decisions can be made as you want them to be made, even if you are not personally able to make them, that necessity. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And also, cause you have to think about everyone it affects. So when you think about reproductive law and especially surrogacy and any sort of egg or embryo donation, it's not just the parties, you know, the intended parents or donors, it's also the kids and the resulting children from those donations and the current siblings and then the genetic siblings of the egg donor. And as we're seeing more and more, and I'm sure Devorah, you're seeing in your research and work, um, that children of donor conceived, um, you know, reproduct reproductive technology or, or things like that are really having things to say because they're not part of these conversations. And so I think that's also something we're seeing more and more is um, how this affects other parties that aren't part of any of these agreements um, mm. and listening to those voices and, and kind of making informed decisions that way. Yeah, I like that how you introduce that idea of like parentage, but then there's also this like, be, there's this becoming adult person, like there's this person who's going to have opinions and thoughts and opinions about their own creation and where are the rights of that child um, in the future. And I think that's definitely something to continue to be mindful of and continue to have these conversations about. So Liz, thank you so much for this time together. This has been fantastic. I know I probably have more questions than, than that we can continue and go on and on, but I think ultimately a lot of this is really about making sure that people understand just how many questions they need to have answered before proceeding in these areas and, and kind of arrangements. Any last minute thoughts, words that you'd like to share? I just think as much as, and I know as a lawyer, I probably listed all the things you have to look out for it. Also such a beautiful journey for so many families and um, the community is so loving and supportive, whether it's therapists, attorneys, patients, providers, um, everybody is really in this team and community to help support the family building journey. And so take it day by day, and even though it might seem really overwhelming, kind of addressing each chunk at a time. And eventually, you know, you will get to your goal if you're able to kind of see through all these aspects. Perfect. Thank you so much. I appreciate the time together.